0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode on EatWise. I cannot wait to share my friend Eric's story with you. But before we get jumping into his story, a few weeks ago, I challenged you to set a goal and to accomplish that goal because it's so easy to get blindsided by the craziness of life and just go into autopilot. So how are you doing? Did you meet that goal? Do you need to bring that goal back out? Do you need to set a new goal? Where are we sitting? What is that looking like? You could shoot me an email. You could shoot me a message on Facebook or Instagram, or you could go to my website and shoot me an email that way. I can be your accountability partner. I'm here to help you be a better person because I'm also trying to be a better person. And sometimes I also need an accountability partner. So check in, where are you at? And if you met that goal, maybe we need to set another one. In these times that are forever changing, it's hard to look forward to the future into what's going on in the world because things keep seeming to ebb and flow. They're opening, they're closing, they're progressing, they're not progressing. We as individuals need to set goals for our lives to keep us pushing forward. So where are you sitting? What's that look like? Let me know. I'm here for you. Anyways, this week we're going to hear from my friend Eric. He is a rock star. We went to culinary school together. He has an incredible story that I've never heard. It's not very often you sit down with your friends and you say, hey, tell me your life story. So it's kind of why I'm doing this podcast is because I'm going to talk to strangers and friends and I'm going to hear their stories and share them with you. And I just think it's awesome. I don't think we get enough of that in our life. And so I'm just going to reiterate that, that that is the goal of my podcast. So anyways, Eric is an incredible human. He just opened a restaurant in a pandemic. He has some amazing partners that understand what it's like to have a family and need to have some time for yourself. He is an executive chef. He is a father. He is a husband. He is killing it, guys. He went from sleeping at the restaurants, from working 16 to 17 hours, to figuring out life and maneuvering it. So we're going to get going. We're going to hear his story, and I hope you learned something. And if anything, go check out their social media tabs. We'll talk about that at the end of this episode. They're doing some awesome things, guys. So Let's get ready. Let's listen to a story. And hey, have a great week. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get this show on the road. Today, we're talking with Eric Montagny from Locals Oyster Bar down in Raleigh, North Carolina. They also just opened another location in Durham and they have a butchery shop. Like, he's killing it, guys. So, Eric is the executive chef and he is a partner in the ownership. of the restaurants and the butchery shop. So we're going to hand the mic over to him and we're going to let him run the show. Obviously I'm going to ask questions cause I love asking questions and we're going to hear a story. So Eric, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. really appreciate it. Um, culinary was definitely not my, my first choice as a career. My family actually actively tried to dissuade me from going to culinary. My grandmother, uh, worked at a restaurant, had a restaurant of her own before I was born, and they saw how hard and how much she worked, and they really didn't want that for me. So actually, out of high school, I went to Appalachian State University for uh, architecture and design, and I went there for three years. And my fourth year going to school there, I really, I was working full-time at a restaurant uh, while while in school, and I quickly realized that I didn't enjoy class as much as i did work and i felt that was that was a little backwards and so i decided to to make a a change for myself and for my life and kind of left everything here in north carolina and picked up and moved to colorado to go to johnson and wales pretty much on a whim i applied for school in july got in in august and i moved september 3rd so it all happened pretty quick and i just never really looked back
0: wow that's a quick turnaround When did you realize you liked cooking?
1: I mean, I always really enjoyed it, even as a kid. My family cooked a lot, and it was one of kind of my favorite times was when I was able to help them cook, and you know, I grew up fishing and hunting quite a bit, and so butchery was also something I was pretty familiar with. Uh, I just didn't really have any formal training in it. I didn't know really the lingo, but I was familiar with breaking down fish and you know deer and, and hogs and whatnot, and I really started to understand uh, in my early twenties that that was a bit more where my heart was, and so I decided to follow that, and that's really what, what led me to start taking cooking a bit more seriously and and pursue it as a career.
0: That's cool. So, at what age did you decide to change from architecture to culinary?
1: Um, it was two weeks before I turned 21 that I got accepted to Johnson and Wales.
0: And what made you choose Johnson and Wales?
1: Well, Johnson and Wales was actually my second choice. I had initially wanted to go to CIA in New York, um, but really it was kind of price prohibitive, uh, for me at the time. And so I decided on Johnson and Wales and they had four campuses at the time. Uh, they had Miami, Charlotte, Rhode Island and Denver and I was born in Miami I didn't want to go back there I lived in Charlotte afterwards I didn't want to go back there so it was a toss up between Rhode Island and Denver everything I read um, kind of led me to think that my my vibe was a bit more Denver than Rhode Island and so that's how I decided
0: Are you glad you chose Denver?
1: I am very glad I really I, I don't think that I don't know that I would have actually stayed in the industry had I not chosen Denver. Um obviously I don't know that for sure, but more so than than school or than cooking what I really got attached to were the people uh and the friendships and the bonds that were formed inside of restaurants and inside of kitchens and it was a a family vibe and a family feeling that you yeah, know, well, clearly, I had been searching for, and and I really connected with people uh, in the community, and and the restaurant community, and food and beverage community in Denver was pretty awesome, and it was pretty great to be a part of.
0: Do you have a favorite memory that you're willing to share?
1: Of, of Denver?
0: Denver school, friendships, whatever it may be.
1: Um. Yeah. Actually, one of my. Favorite times. I was just a line cook, and it was our our executive chef's birthday, and he never really came out and hung out and like went out drinking with the line cooks very often, uh, probably for good reason. <laughs> but he decided that on this night, it's his birthday, and and he was going to come out and have some drinks with us. And at the time, I was living right off of Colfax, pretty close to downtown, and bunch of us about 10 or so people from the kitchen including chef ended up back at my little apartment and we ended up climbing out of my roof or out of my window onto the fourth story roof of our building which had this like really incredible view of downtown and like 10 people just huddled up on the slope of the roof and we all sat up there and just hung out until like three or four in the morning and it was really like one of the most genuine uh bonding experiences i've i've had with a kitchen crew outside of a kitchen it was it was awesome it was memorable for sure
0: that's cool when did you live down by colfax was that after you graduated
1: um yeah that was that that was after uh i had i had left johnson and wales I actually i actually never graduated from johnson and wales really um but yeah I'd, i don't have a degree uh yeah I'd, all i had left was my internship. And I had, I was already a sous chef at the hotel, working 60 plus hours a week. And they declined to allow me to do my sous chef, or to do my internship at the same place that I was working at. I was going to have to go get another job, another unpaid job. Uh, <laughs> and I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. Take it because that would also mean a demotion for me at work. I would be going backwards to being a line cook in order to accommodate for the extra hours at a different location, uh, and so it seemed like a like a step in the wrong direction for my career. And so I ended up opting out, um, which, in the long run, you know, <laughs> who knows if it'll pay off or not? Because I obviously still paying back those student debts or those student loan debts, <laughs> but I don't have the the degree. Um, but really, I, I don't regret it. You know, I really, I enjoyed my time at Johnson & Wales. I really enjoyed my time in Denver. Uh, my first year, especially at Johnson & Wales, I think was was really great for me, not only in making friendships that have, that are still active now. I mean, I think you and I met our, my first year there. I think it was your first year there too. I'm still friends with, like very close friends with a lot of the people that I met there um it just never panned out that i was able to finish my degree
0: damn it that <laughs> i guess it sucks but yeah oh well yeah i mean
1: I, I don't want to i never really wanted to uh to dwell too much on it and i guess it happened for a reason and things have seemed to turn out um fairly well for me without it and so you know maybe i, I had to work a little bit harder but and I got to where I wanted to be.
0: Yeah, so what did life look like afterwards?
1: Uh, So afterwards, I really, I I stayed in Denver for about three years after school, and I didn't bounce around too much. I pretty much worked at uh, the hotel, both in the restaurant and in the banquet department. and then I left there to go work at 12, uh, which is probably still one of... My favorite and most uh, fond memories of cooking that I've ever had, because it was just such a unique kitchen, a unique crew, Um, and the 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 design of the of the menu and the way that the food worked there was really engaging and new for me. So we completely developed new menus every month. That's why it was called twelve menus a year. And so the first of every month regardless of what day of the week that fell on, we launched an entire new menu. And sometimes that fell on a Wednesday and it wasn't so bad. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it fell on a Saturday and it was really bad, (laughs) but it it really made me learn very quickly um, how to think on my feet, how to think through a dish, how to taste through a dish, how to cost food effectively how to maintain profit. Uh, it taught me a lot in a very short amount of time because I I had to. I, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I got hired there as a line cook, and within about two months, I was chef de cuisine and pretty much writing and overseeing menus there. And so it moved pretty quickly, but it was really engaging and difficult time for me. I mean, there were a lot of 16-, 17-hour days there. But it was a lot of fun.
0: Wow. So how did you manage those 16, 17-hour days?
1: Caffeine and a sheer desire to not fail. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I was so just enamored with, with the industry and with every aspect of it. I loved the 17-hour days. It's crazy to think, but I it was at that point in my life, I did. I, it's all I wanted to do. Every second of every day was focused around food, around cooking. Um, We were closed on Sundays, and on every Sunday, the entire restaurant staff, front house and back of house would gather up in Cheeseman Park. We would cook out together. I mean, it it was really, it was a family. There was no schedule there. Everybody worked every day we were open. Um, It was just a really small team, and it was an incredibly talented team there was only 4 of us in the kitchen at the time 3 of them are now executive chefs at other places one of them has gone through uh two three michelin star restaurants that he's been chef cuisine at like we had an incredibly talented team and it was that sort of uh that sort of energy really motivated me to continuously push myself forward and continuously read and research and, and get better
0: Wow, that's really cool. So, is Twelve still open?
1: Uh, they very sadly just closed, actually, for good. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff Osaka is was the chef owner there, and he's still in Denver, and he's opened several other very successful um, restaurants uh, in Denver. He, he's had a really a lot of success branching out from Twelve and kind of becoming more of a of a restaurateur and and he's done great but uh since the closures of with covid he's actually unfortunately decided not to reopen it which was a a little sad but you know I'm grateful that I was able to be a, a very small part of that restaurant for a, a period of time
0: yeah so at what point did you consider yourself a chef
1: it wasn't it was a while i really and so after Working at 12 for a while, I actually ended up going back to the hotel to be a sous chef at the banquet department for a little while before moving back to North Carolina. And even after taking my first executive chef job, it was probably a year after that, that I really started to consider myself myself a chef. I really have always thought of myself more as, as a line cook that has kind of graduated up and but still remained that line cook mentality. It really until probably two or three years ago um, did I start understanding that you know my, my role as a chef wasn't always to be a line cook and that wasn't where I was best suited all the time and in order for me to grow I needed to step into roles that that were easy to make fun of when I was a line cook you know <laughs> it's easy to be like oh you know chef just sits in the office and those orders and write schedules and whatnot but a lot of the I think what really stopped me from wanting to make the leap from line cook to chef uh was fear you know for for so long I'd gotten comfortable with being a line cook and I knew how to line cook and I was good at it I didn't know if I was going to be good at this new stuff at, at the computer work and at costing and at managing staff but just like anything else worked hard at it and learned and failed and tried again
0: would you be willing to talk about the differences between a cook and a chef i feel like i get a lot of people that have a misconstrued um, conception of what a cook is and what a chef is
1: yeah i mean it it definitely varies from restaurant to restaurant um and in person to person even it really depends on how that person how seriously they take themselves in their career, but for the most part, a, a cook is gonna show up to work and have a, a list of tasks that they need to do, or be dictated a list of tasks that they need to do. And they have a station, and they have a certain amount and certain types of sauces and ingredients that need to prep for that station, and that's all they worry about is mm-hmm. their their bubble, their two to three foot area of the kitchen, and you work that area and that's it. And so it, it's much more concentrated stress where you, you know when and where your your volume and your points of stress are coming. You know when you're going to be busy and you don't necessarily have to worry about as many curveballs. You just kind of show up to work and then when you clock out and you leave, you leave your work behind. And really the, the change to being a chef was that you, you don't clock out there's no there's no real leaving your work behind you're always thinking you're always trying to create new dishes you're always thinking through uh mistakes that you made and learning from them and trying to improve them and you know trying to push yourself and your restaurant and your staff forward and that's i think was the biggest difference for me was uh less of a of a tunnel vision on one station or one set of dishes and a broader picture, and really removing yourself uh, from, from that pinpoint focus and trying to see the big picture and do what's best uh, for the team as a whole.
0: So is that what you have done with local oyster bar?
1: Yeah. You know, I really, I, I think I'm pretty lucky to have stumbled onto the group Uh, of partners that I have here seafood and fishing has always been very dear to me personally my dad commercial commercially fished out of south florida when I was before I was born and even briefly after I was born and I grew up fishing and on commercial boats and so fishing's always been a big thing to me and I was able to team up with the folks uh my now partners to, to open this restaurant and they've really encouraged and enabled me to, to be creative and to think outside of the box. And some of my, uh, like life goals, they were, I've been able to, to follow them through this restaurant. You know, we've got, uh, some pretty lofty goals and a lot of them geared towards, Uh, sustainability and longevity for the seafood industry because no fools we understand that you know the the world as we know it and at our current rate of consumption isn't sustainable and so we as stewards to the ocean need to do our part to try and and be better and so really my focus is in how do we find better utilization for not only highly desired species, but then how do we create markets for um, lesser thought species? How do we create markets for cuts and for parts of fish and for animals that typically aren't, aren't consumed in, in the Western world? And so that, that's been really energizing for me. For On average, a fish yields about 50% fillet out of its weight and so if you think about half of everything we catch we throw away is is absurd and clearly not a sustainable practice and so my objective is what what do we do with that other 50 percent?
0: so what have you been doing with it
1: we've we've mm-hmm. launched a we've started a butchery company actually it's a seafood butchery company that we're making value added products out of a lot of these items and so we're making any type of sausage or charcuterie that you would typically find made out of land mammals we've been able to produce out of seafood and so we have a whole line of seafood sausages we're making hot dogs that are from shrimp and scallop pieces that are typically thrown away so if you've ever cleaned scallops before, they have a little ductor muscle where they attach to the shell. Uh, it's typically called the foot. And as you're cleaning scallops, you remove that foot because when you cook it, it can get much tougher than the rest of the scallop. It's always discarded. Well, we actually found that by grinding and whipping that, it inflates and creates uh, a good emulsion similar to a hot dog. And so we made a hot dog that is other than the sheep's casing complete pescatarian on the inside um, out of shrimp pieces and scallop pieces that would otherwise be thrown away Um, tuna was another big one for us where not only are they low yield animals but they have a bloodline that runs down the center of them and it's typically like a darker purple meat since they don't have veins their blood just evenly disperses throughout their muscle and this bloodline was always thrown away because it was darker. It wasn't that bright red color that everybody was accustomed to. um, And it had a different flavor. It didn't have a bad flavor. It was just different. Well, after some R and D we ended up finding out that it really just had a higher iron content due to to the blood flow, which lended it to be a bit closer in texture and flavor to, to beef. And so when we discovered that, we kind of ran with it and we started doing burgers and lasagna and meatballs and, you know, shepherd's pies and anything you would do with ground beef. We started applying this tuna to, and we I mean, we've diverted thousands of pounds of organic waste from the landfill wow. to, able to feed people with it.
0: Cool. Serve that in the restaurant or do you sell that?
1: both so we we have uh two restaurants now we just opened our second location in durham in may uh which is a crazy experience to open another restaurant during a pandemic but um both of our locations have a restaurant and a market aspect to them and then we have three farmers markets that we're present in as well so we actually sell these products at our markets uh and we also cook them and serve them in our restaurants. We're currently going through um, finalizing labeling for FDA approval and getting everything approved uh, for nutritional facts by the FDA to hopefully start selling them in grocery stores. a lot of these products too are way more health conscious uh, and not only environmentally conscious, but health conscious compared to their land mammal counterparts
0: that's cool so you talked about your second location where's your first location located
1: so our first our first brick and mortar location was in raleigh north carolina it's at the transfer company food hall um and that was uh that was a really fun project it was a huge learning curve for us we really we took on a lot there we manage and uh operate the hall itself and so it's um main hall is about 10,000 square feet. You have a patio that sits about hundred people, and hundred space parking lot. it's a, it's a big, so it's just one city block pretty much. And we manage the space. We also have a seafood market in there. We have a food hall stall. And then we have a like elevated, I don't want to say fine dining, but elevated restaurant in there as well. That seats 43. We kind of jumped in feet first into this project that had so many different heads and it, it took us a while to figure out. Then, right as we were starting to really figure it out and around the corner, uh, everything kind of closed down with the pandemic. So we've, we've been able to shift and to pivot and really focus more on the market and highlight those products and do some at-home delivery of, of seafood and uh, launch a couple new programs that other Otherwise, if not for the pandemic, we probably wouldn't have gotten to for a couple of years. So trying to make lemonade and see some silver linings, we've been able to, to do some stuff.
0: For opening your first brick and mortar, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome?
1: Opening a restaurant, any restaurant, is really hard. Uh, inspections are difficult. Contractors are late. Construction gets delayed. Hiring new staff is hard really is uh, we we got actually very lucky with the staff that we hired. I think we had a really incredible management team. I think we hired some really talented people right off the, the start and we've been able to, to maintain and to grow those folks. I think one of the hardest parts um, was actually the, our customer base and our new customer base about these off the wall things that we were doing. You know, we weren't your, typical oyster bar where you were just going to go get a dozen raw oysters and you know a, a fried fish basket we were serving weird things like a tuna bloodline burger and chicken fried fish collars and hot dogs and pastrami made from swordfish and ham made from tuna and so i think the the expectation was different from the reality when when folks first came in but as, as scary as that was, we believed in it, we stuck with it, and we're, we're uh,
0: You're happy
1: to see that people liked it, <laughs> and, and we're, we're still here, and we're still doing it. We've got a lot of support.
0: So how did you overcome some of those hiccups?
1: Just pushing through and really, le- you know, learning a lot, listening to our, our staff and their feedback and listening to our customers. Um Allowing ourselves to take chances and fail, but not letting it deter us from the goal, um, I think was the hardest but most rewarding part for it all. It was, there were definitely times, you know, every day for the first three months, I thought, this is the day that nobody's going to show up. No one's going to be here. <laughs> and I think it's a natural feeling to have is like you spent we spent two years trying to build that place and get it open get to day one you're like well hold on is anyone gonna come in <laughs> um <laughs> and so it's really unnerving uh but every day at least one person showed up and so we just kept kept moving forward and kept trying
0: cool what was the first day like
1: it was crazy a, we were the only people in the place open. The place was still under construction. There was like a massive 25-foot tarp that like blocked off half of the building. I even announced that we were opening. We like told a few friends and we just unlocked the doors to see what would happen and like started playing music. It was great. <laughs> people showed up and people were supportive and, you know, it was we opened with with a very slim team it was myself and my sous chef and that's it uh and we had our general manager up front and that was that was the entire staff that and our partners didn't have servers we didn't have bartenders we didn't have dishwashers you no know, prep cooks it was that was it and we just all wherever we needed to be at the time and clean bathrooms or scrub dishes whatever it was we did it and we did it together also what probably helped in kind of building our our relationship both personally and professionally and as a par- group of partners and a upper management team it was kind of going through those tough few months of really bootstrapping it and doing it yourself and it enabled us to then hire and train correctly when when it come time to train people because we had we cleaned the bathrooms you know we changed the keg lines and prepped every single vegetable and fish that came through there
0: like team building
1: yeah it really was I mean it was it was a ton of work but everyone you know when when someone was having a bad day you just you help them out and you do what you can and you help them push through it and we had a strong enough team that uh we were able to to carry each other through.
0: I was creeping on your Instagram a few days ago. It says that you offer classes. Do you still offer classes or will you once you're able to open full uh, capacity?
1: We're doing classes right now um you know of what we do a lot of the classes we're doing is really requiring us to be pretty hands on to be working shoulder to shoulder in both of the oyster shucking classes and fish filleting classes those are two things that that we think uh keep a lot of people from buying whole fish and taking it home and from buying oysters and taking them home it's really just an unfamiliarity uh, with the product and you know a lack of knowledge that that deters that and so these classes really we started doing them as a with a goal of just teaching people about the product and about the process and about respecting the product so that they felt more empowered to be able to do this themselves at home. And then, you know, then possibly show somebody else. And so the, the classes were a ton of fun, especially the the fish filleting classes. I really enjoyed teaching those and getting people hands-on knife and a whole fish and showing them how to process it and not just how to, it but how to use all of it. you know going back to our main ethos and our moral compass as a business was utilization And so showing them how to pull the collars off and talk to them about collars and you know what to do with the bones and how to make stock and, and all of those things that as a chef or someone who's been to culinary school you can sometimes uh, toss aside and, and assume that they're common knowledge but really they're not. And so that was that was a lot of fun. And um, we're not currently doing them, but I am looking forward to, to doing them again soon.
0: We'll do them again. Yeah. yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah, we've thought about doing some like um, like virtual ones through Zoom. Um, and we may end up doing some of those in the future. But for right now, they're, they're on pause.
0: Awesome. So you mentioned earlier that you used to work, say, 16, 17-hour days. But now that you're a dad and you're married and you have a family, how do you manage a family life work life balance?
1: It's hard. There's no there's no denying it. It's definitely challenging to do um dad getting married, starting a family, like all all of that changed priorities and my goals pretty significantly. And you know, I, I realized that kind of how I mentioned previously when I was at 12 that I was consumed and enamored by that lifestyle I wasn't anymore and I wanted to be home more and I wanted to be with my wife and I wanted to be with with my daughter I didn't want to miss anything that was happening and so I my mentality shifted from forward and working harder to pushing forward by working smarter mm-hmm. and and focusing on efficiency, and really that that took time, and it's it's still a work in progress. You know, i definitely not figured it out by any means yet. I'm very lucky that my wife is very understanding of of the job and of the lifestyle. She worked a very long time in the industry, and understands the hours, and has been nothing but supportive of me and of my dreams. Um, consider myself very lucky to have that um it's been very difficult you know I'm, I'm,
0: and what does your wife do
1: uh so she works uh she's a hairdresser she, she just opened her own salon this year as well oh so, yeah yeah it's been a been a big year for us and she's trying to figure it all out and you know she's able to kind of work around ellie's schedule and my mom babysits whenever neither of us are here, and so it's it's good that we didn't have to like you know go through childcare during during this time as well. You know, we have my mom just comes over and watches her while while we're both gone at work.
0: That's cool. Did you move back primarily to be closer to family?
1: Yeah, that and to be closer to the ocean. I really I miss the water.
0: Did um, you? I don't Yeah, burn.
1: I really did. And so to be closer to family, um, you know, my, my last year there in Denver, I lost my grandmother and I wasn't able to I wasn't able to talk to her see her before she passed. I wasn't able to make it home for the for the funeral. Um, and I think that kinda hit home for me a bit and and really made me wanna be a, a bit closer to the rest of my family. And yeah, you know, at the time Denver was getting very expensive to live in, and as cost of living was going up, the the pay for line cooks was not. Yeah. So I kind of had to had to make a decision.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Denver just like boomed. Everybody moved there. Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like once legalization happened, it just took over. And so many people moved in and housing became so expensive. I mean, the last place I lived at was 600 square feet. We paid $1,700 a month. What? It was just insane. It was like Colfax and Downing. It wasn't like I was in the heart of downtown. I wasn't even in a great neighborhood.
0: <laughs> Is this where you guys went out on the rooftop?
1: Um, No, no. That was at the house before. Mm-hmm. Uh. This is like a newer apartment complex, kind of right between downtown and Cheeseman Park. Um, mm. and it's just so wildly expensive. i just i mean to the two of us that lived there both worked time and a half. We both worked sixty hours a week and could barely afford to just pay the bills and that's just not a that's not a lifestyle I'm interested in.
0: No, um, there's in the hall wor-
1: working to live. No. I'm lucky also to again have the partners and the team that I have at work that they value in and livelihoods and work life balance more so than I think a lot of people that I've worked with previously did. And they encourage that. And so I think we have a really good culture of checking each other and making sure we're not overworking and we're not too stressed. And if we see one another in that situation, kind of saying something, calling each other out, man, it came in, you're, you need to go home for a little while. You need to take some times off. You need to take a weekend. Uh, I'm blessed to be in a situation where, where people care in that way.
0: That's awesome to have that accountability, especially at work when it's so easy to just stay there and work.
1: yeah, I mean there were there have been several nights before i, I had a family that I slept at the restaurant uh, there have been multiple twenty four hour plus shifts where I never saw the daylight before, and that's just not a reality anymore and, and it never should have been to be honest you're you're not productive after that many hours it doesn't matter who you are your mentality or how hard you work uh, you, the human mind I don't think is made to do that uh, and definitely not the human body it takes a toll and I I'd really I hope to never have to go back to, to that again as much as I don't regret it now I think it made me appreciate the situation I have now and I'd I actually think fondly on on those memories of sleeping in in the restaurant using a bag of towels as a pillow or sack of aprons.
0: Goodness. You said you were making dinner for your daughter. What do you make for dinners at home?
1: Um, so tonight she had some striped bass with cherry tomatoes and shishito peppers that we pulled out of the garden out back. And she had some grapes and avocado. That's it. Um, And then, you know, my wife and I kind of have the seconds of whatever she's eating typically to try and reduce the amount of cooking we're doing. So we had a salad with fish and avocado and shishitos and tomatoes and whatnot and keep it pretty simple. But we've been, you know, it's also really changed how having a, a daughter changed how I how I eat pretty oh. significantly. Um, and it's something that I definitely didn't expect. But I eat much healthier. <laughs> I take much better care of myself now than I did in the past. Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate part to the industry in general that typically cooks and chefs don't get to and can't afford to eat at the places that they work. And so most of my meals when I was coming up as a cook were either inhaled at work out of a core container, like leaned over a trash can as quickly as I could, or at one or two in the morning from a greasy spoon or fast food restaurant. And it's not a healthy lifestyle. And so my life now focusing on what she eats has changed the way I eat. Um, proxy now; those are the products that I buy, and that's what we have in the house are healthier things for her. And so, my snacks aren't so much potato chips as they are cherry tomatoes or cucumbers or, you know, oranges.
0: She's a very picky eater.
1: No, she's she's done really great. Uh, she'll eat just about anything it definitely, she goes through phases. I mean, this morning she loved grapes for dinner. She threw all the grapes at the dog. (laughs) So it's kind of, uh, it kind of depends on, on her mood, but overall she's, she's pretty great about eating. She's not super picky.
0: Oh, well, thank goodness for her to turn your, your eating habits around. Definitely. So what advice would you give someone looking to get into the culinary world or open a restaurant?
1: Looking to get into the culinary world, research, know what you're getting yourself into. It's going to be hard. The number one place you can learn and you can get ahead and you can set yourself apart is by reading. Read and research and read and look at what other people are doing and why are they doing it. Study the science behind food um, and really understand food on a different level. I think it, it makes you relate to it and build dishes in a more effective manner. My number one advice for young cooks is just read. Read and ask questions and don't be afraid to fail.
0: What do you uh, suggest they read?
1: Everything. I mean, I, I've probably got everything cooking oriented. I, I've probably got 300 books that that I've accumulated over over the years Um, from very scientific uh, molecular level chemistry of of food um, to cuisine styles that are completely foreign to me, Um, Bangladesh and Thailand and, and areas that I've never been to, foods that I've never eaten, but just understanding uh, and understanding how really every, every culture pretty much has its, its version of, of a style of food. Every culture has a dumpling. Every culture has a sandwich. Um, the, the vessel changes. The starch content might change. The source of sugar might change. Uh, but the, the packaging... And the final product ends up being of the same ethos. I think that's where understanding the science behind food helped me was that I was able to understand that the difference between a Chinese dumpling and a uh, wasn't that significant. And they're, you know, thousands of miles apart. When you talk about cultures, and but really at the end of the day, it's a starch that's been mixed with a fat and a liquid, and in cases typically a ground or pulsed protein or vegetable.
0: Travel to those different countries and just taste how it is there, or does that
1: even? Yeah, all the time. Oh yeah, I mean that. I think respect for those cuisines also comes from reading and researching them. Um, Read and watch shows, and you should educate yourself as much as you can, but I don't think there's probably anything that can replace immersing yourself in those cultures. Um, I've tried to read and research about traditional Western Chinese food. I would never claim that I knew how to cook Western Chinese food without ever going to Western China and spending time there and, and truly learning what it was about. Um, I think I, I at least can can learn about it in, in the respects that I can from a distance and use that information to maybe influence the next dish I make.
0: Would you give someone who's looking to open a restaurant?
1: Open a restaurant. Um, I hope you've worked in restaurants before (laughs) and you know what you're about to get into or hire somebody that you trust that has and then trust their judgment. I think one of the biggest mistakes I see people make as restaurateurs is that they don't think it's that hard and, you know, they come from a different industry and it seems very lucrative restaurants are also not lucrative business models uh just to put that out there this is a purely passion driven endeavor um you don't do it to get rich and if that's why you're opening a restaurant don't you're doing it for the wrong reasons that's really understand what you're getting into and understand that if, that you're not your restaurant is probably not going to turn profits for the first two to three years pre-pandemic <laughs> who knows what it looks like now <laughs> um but it really like, doing this I, I couldn't see myself really doing much else and that's what drives me forward not not a paycheck and so if those are your goals and this isn't for you
0: did you get to use any part of your architectural architectural background to help with this restaurant
1: I like to think so. I, I like to think <laughs> that I definitely made some some design changes. It definitely came into play in our second location where I was much more involved in in design and layout. Um, it's also a much smaller space, and so we really had to think fairly efficiently and use um, as much vertical as we did horizontal space. And, you know, our, our location in Raleigh is like 3,000 square feet and our location in Durham's 300. So oh, wow. Crazy, like huge discrepancies in size, but both locations have a restaurant, an oyster bar, and a market inside at obviously massively different scales. Um, definitely, I, I like to think that I used some of that architecture and design knowledge.
0: Well as we start to wrap things up, I have two questions for you. One, how can people find you on social media?
1: Locals Hoyster Bar. And then our Durham location is at Locals Durham. Uh, we also our seafood company is at locals seafood. And so we are we are our own seafood purveyor as well. We have a, a warehouse here in Raleigh and a cut shop and a fleet of vehicles when we send to the coast. Um, just about every day right now during the summer to, to buy fish. We source only local North Carolina seafood. Uh, everything from oysters, shrimp, scallops, fish. Um, solely local North Carolina sourced. Everything comes in fresh. We pick everything up from the docks and from the captains or from the farmers ourselves and drive it straight back. And so traceability and, and sustainability are kind of our, our focuses. But yeah, locals add- local seafood at locals oyster bar are going to be the best places to to stay in touch.
0: Cool. Awesome. So then my last question to you is what is the best thing that has happened to you this past week?
1: Uh, I've actually gotten to work from home for a whole day, which is really great.
0: <laughs> That's I, awesome.
1: One was super productive and got a lot of kind of back end computer work done that I needed to get done. And two, I got to spend pretty much a whole day with, with my daughter, which was awesome getting to you know work when she naps and play with her while she's up. Even though I'm, I'm not working those crazy 2 a.m. shifts anymore, there are definitely days where I don't make it home for bedtime and and that stuff. So yeah, I got to spend a, a whole extra day with her this week.
0: Oh, that's awesome. All right, Eric, well, thank you for spending time with us on this podcast and telling us your story. And those of you listening, I hope you learned something about whether it's life or opening a restaurant or what it is to work in the restaurant business, whatever it is. I hope you took away something and I hope you also incorporate it into your life somehow.